Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 60, Walking Well as Parents, Pastors, and Therapists. Yes, welcome. Hi, I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I am here with licensed therapist and Argyle expert, except today he's in plaid. You can do that. It's like your switch out, isn't it? Uh, but my husband, Matt Krieg. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> or mini shirts. Yeah, you look like, I don't have just one outfit, honey. Uh, and radio voice and classic dad and our producer, producer Steve. Hello. Hello. I was thinking the Grinch. You remember the narrator of the old Dr. Seuss Grinch movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had that big, full voice. That's perfect. Yeah. I like that. Going for that. And we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I just, the, for the first time ever, we have a sponsor uh, of this podcast. But there's a little trick. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. Uh, Your support helps make this podcast and ministry possible. And for this month, for like November, it's like two days left in November uh, and December, we have a free swag deal going on for you. And I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the podcast. Also, I did want to pause a second before I introduce our amazing guests, because I did announce on the the social meads, as the young kid call it, (laughs) um, young kid, I only didn't make a plural, young kids call it, uh, that we are pregnant with our third child, which is really exciting. Steve did a big kickback, even though we told you weeks ago. I already already, already knew. We told you. So thank you guys for all of your encouragement and just... Uh, you have been journeying with us actually through this podcast somewhat. Mm -hmm. So just thanks for your continued journeying and we're excited and early June will Lord willing be baby three. Are you excited, Matt? Yeah, I it's yeah, (laughs) it's both exciting and terrifying because we've already got our hands full. Yeah. Uh, But thank you guys. I just wanted to shout that out before we introduce again, our amazing guest we have in the house, not physically, but in the spirit, he's in Virginia, but it's Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Mark, welcome. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. Now, for those of you who don't know Dr. Yarhouse, he is professor of psychology at Regent University in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he's a core faculty member in the doctoral program in clinical psychology. And he has published, this was crazy, I didn't know all this, but he's published over 80 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters and is the author and co-author of several books, including ones that we have read, both Matt and I, uh, Understanding Sexual Identity, a resource for youth ministers and understanding gender dysphoria and navigating transgender issues in a changing culture. And he's also written some very helpful papers. You all know I serve on the board of directors for the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And Dr. Yarhouse has uh, written some really great uh, papers there, also co-authored some on the Center for Faith's site. And so I will link to some of those papers as well as his book on the podcast page. But... Mark, we are thrilled to have you on here to talk through some big categories of questions that we receive here at HIMH from parents and pastors and therapists. And they ask us these both like, uh, we'll call them small questions in that they're like languagey things and they seem maybe small to us who are in this conversation a lot, but also some very personal and um, heavy questions about, you know, things like, Mm. hey, my daughter is transitioning to male now and just help me. Will you please help me? So I'm excited to hear and get some of your expertise on that. Um, But first, as we do here on the HIMH podcast, we are going to talk about the question of the week from last week, which sometimes these questions are super deep and like about the core fear of men and women. But this was about Black Friday. 
uh, right? I mean, we got to mix it up a little bit. (laughs) But are you in or not? And we asked you all, and if you're in, are you like online in or do you go and like elbow people and get things? So, uh, Mark, we'll start with you. What's what's your take on Black Friday? Yeah, I got to be honest. I'm not in. Uh, I I my wife is in. She loves to go oh, yeah. and she she likes to kind of go uh, if she can with her sister or our kids, things like that, friends. But I would say if I if I'm in at all, if I dip my toe at all in, it's yeah. online. That's yeah. really that's the only way I would do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we feel you with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe I'll just jump in and then I want to hear from the guys. But um, we asked you, the listeners, and my friend Brett said that she finds as she gets older and more mature that there are fewer things she wants or needs. So I no longer go out for the hustle. I am thankful for the online shopping deals for those items I do need. So Matt and I, we actually took a vacation this last week to Gulf Shores and we spent like three days <laughs> building up our shopping cart at Kohl's because we sure love Kohl's and that Kohl's <laughs> cash, don't we, Matt? Oh, yeah. Hey, man. So we like built our shopping cart and it was stressful enough to like think through the list and literally just click. <laughs> but I was like, by the end, I'm like, oh, just push, get it. We just did that on Black Friday. So we stuck to the online. Um, but I did in years past, Mark, similar to your wife, I like I liked going out and if if I if my sisters were around, I like to just go and hang with them and just be around mm-hmm. people and things that are for sale. But I really don't care about buying anything. I just like hanging out. Mm-hmm. How about you, Matt? I really liked what Dave said online that that he is gonna shop online with a list in his hand. He's gotta stick to the list. Because <laughs> yeah. it's a little crazy out there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm the same way. If there's something that I really want or really need, like I feel like there's a use for, then I'll then I'll go online for it. And if I can't find it online or if I know it's in a local store, then I'm going to turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger tackling Sinbad <laughs> in order to get that last Turbo Man doll. No, you won't. No, I won't. You That's a joke. You would never, ever, ever <laughs> do that. that. <laughs> I, I feel like... I'm that is a reference a, to take, Jingle All the Way. Yes. yes. That was going to be my guess, Jingle All the Way. Which wow. just ushers us into the Christmas season, too. Absolutely. So, I mean, let's face it. But no, I'm I'm definitely not a proponent of Black Friday and and the sense of I don't get into it Mm. Steve okay so I like what Haley said I uh, don't do it as a matter of principle we spend a day thanking God for what we've been given and then the next day worship at the altar of consumerism ouch it seems so American to celebrate what we have and then go after more if I go out at all it's to do normal shopping after everyone else has gone home to bed so I mean ideologically Haley you are like you win you win. <laughs> yes, yes, that's on point. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I would say for myself personally, I'm not quite as idealistic as that, but I'm not a sales shopper. I've, I think I've got issues with trust. Like, I feel like sales are a scam. Like, for yeah. some reason, like, there's yeah. just like, uh, I don't trust any of what yeah. you people are saying to me. Yeah. I think there's going to be a bait and switch. There's going to be like, so anyway, I've got issues to work through, but. Also, in the meantime, I stay home. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Time for Island. And the vehicle we are taking is a Lazy Susan. Yeah, we're repeating a vehicle. We've okay. done that one before where you just yes. spun it. It's the, the circle on the top of a table and you spin it and you make things go around. Okay. And the reason is because we're playing the game Table Topics. And that's right. I took our game Table Topics and I picked a few questions that I wanted to ask Dr. Yarhouse. Uh, so I have got just three for you because I really want to dig into the heart of the matter because this is some important things we're covering 
But Mark, which book dramatically influenced your life besides Bible, which we know that's a that's a go to. Yeah, that's got to be a top one right there. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, I think any probably. Anything that's been written about Middle Earth has probably impacted me a lot. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or just recently I read um, The Fall of Gondolin. So this was, mm. you know, Christopher Tolkien's been there's a I think there's a CT article recently about how he's been like the steward of Middle Earth. And he's been sort of taking care of his father's you know work in this area. Yep. And uh, he just recently kind of retired from that, I guess, saying that was my last thing. But I just read that. And I think. I just like the uh, I just like when someone is at their top of their craft and Mm -hmm. they I mean, he was Tolkien was all in, you know, when you think about the language and all the linguistic structure, all these different things like Mm -hmm. I can't even think about what that would be required to to do something like that. Uh, It reminds me as like great composers who can see all the notes across all the instruments and all the layers of everything like I can't even. You know, I'm having trouble writing a sentence for a, for a, for a chapter in a book, you know, and I, so I, I just really admire, you know, that level of, of talent. Yeah. So, yeah. I know, Matt, you've said on this podcast at least once or twice, like how you pick friends based on those who they just really care about a thing. And so mm. if you think about Tolkien, it'd be like he really cared. And like you're saying, with the, the language piece right. and he developed that whole world. Which you had a lot of nodding heads on this side. I know you can't see them, but Steve and Matt are ready to go and hang out with you now with your love for Middle Earth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Second question. If you could do something dangerous just once with no risk, what would you do? Oh, this is hard. See, I don't like heights. Okay. Okay. So let me just put it out there. And I fly all the time. Like I don't like flying. So I'm like, let's get some Xanax. Let's figure this out. But I just don't (laughs) like to do it. And uh, it's ironic that I spend so much of my life in airplanes, okay? Mm. So I I probably, something like skydiving, like would be, to me, really dangerous and absolutely the most terrifying thing I could ever do. Wow. So I don't think you could ever get me to do it. <laughs> like I'd have to be like all in on the anti-anxiety medication, but that's <laughs> that's probably something I would be right up there. I love it. You're leaning yeah. right into the fear. I like that. Yeah. It's like flooding. Flooding, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) There you go, therapist. (laughs) Do your thing. All right. Last question. What have you lost that you'd like to find? Okay. I actually just found this, and I can't even take credit for that, but my wife found it. But I lost my class ring from Calvin College. Oh, man. And I... I, I wear it all the time and I lost it. I don't even know how it can even come off my finger. It was gone. Oh, no. And I uh, I was retracing my steps. I went back to a grocery store. I looked through their parking lot. I went to the oh. salad bar. I was like everywhere. And uh, and she just recently found it. So I actually just had this happen. And oh, it wow. was uh, kind of traumatizing. That sounds like it because it was really meaningful. Where did she find yeah. it, if I may ask? <laughs> okay. Well, we have this kind of junk drawer that has – a bag of coins. So like when you have change, you throw your change in this bag. Right. And so she was throwing change in this bag, but she takes the pennies out. The pennies go into a whole nother jar. It's a whole big thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I just live here. So <laughs> and, uh, anyway, she's doing that and she goes in to get the pennies out and there's my ring out of nowhere. <gasps> just, I have no idea how it got there. Like wow. it's not, it doesn't even make sense. No. So. Well, oh, that's hmm. nice. I, I'll, I'll just confess my secret hope for that story was that you would have just said at the Shire and the Baggins <laughs> residence. 
that someone stole oh, yeah. your precious ring. We could restate that. That would or be we were deep beneath, <laughs> you back. deep underneath the misty mountains. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Right. No. Oh man. See, I told you the nerds are lighting up. Okay. <laughs> we are going to move now into the heart of the matter. All right, Mark, every time that we do this podcast and interview a new guest, we ask them the same pair of questions because the reason that we do this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. And so we ask every guest, like we're asking you, when was the gospel first good news for you and why and how is it still? Yeah, well, I... I would say the gospel. So I was raised by Christian parents. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother had grown up in a Christian home. My dad was an adult convert to Christianity. And he, so they were both pretty, you know, on fire and just raised us in a home to really, uh, they emulated the faith and just lived it out in their love for each other and love for God. And, and oh, we moved a lot growing up. It took us to churches that just taught taught the Bible and really believed in, in Christ and, uh, so, but at some point you have to decide, is this true for me? Like, do I believe what what they're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was actually in high school and I went on a youth group retreat um, to Ocean City, Maryland. And the, the it's kind of a strange story. I guess the, the guy who was teaching was like one of these fire and brimstone guys, like just laying it, in, just really going after it. Huh. And so I got to confess, I for me, it had a little bit of a quality of fire insurance at the time. Like, oh, my gosh, this is good. This is crazy. Jonathan so Edwards. I uh, I said, this is this is for me. But what really did it was my youth pastor. He discipled me for the next two years. Like we would meet weekly to study scripture. He would teach me how to pray, just what prayer prayer is and just pray with me and for me and read the word and just really uh, invested in me for the next couple of years. So I'm a big fan of discipleship. Yeah. Um, that for me, really, it, uh, my faith really came alive uh, to me there. <sighs> and I would say this last, you know, for me, what's what keeps things vibrant? What's the gospel vibrant for me? Yeah. I was, you know, I try to do spiritual retreats from time to time. Um, like, Annually, I take my research team. We go on a on a retreat, whether it's to a retreat house or a monastery or just a church, and we spend half a day or more at a retreat. I did that throughout graduate school by myself, and mm-hmm. so I, I take my research team to do that. Um, I've had spiritual directors in the past who've given me really helpful uh, advice. I kind of borrowed one. He's a spiritual director for a, uh, one of my students, but she lent him. To, I don't know if you can lend spiritual directors, but she kind of <laughs> lent him to me because um, I was going through a bit of a spiritual crisis. And he was just really helpful. Like he he taught me this idea of like expanding your capacity. Hmm. So like um, the way he put it is like a thimble can be full and the ocean can be full. And so what you really want to do in your walk with Christ is expand your capacity for fullness of the virtues of what it means to be a Christian. So if I want to grow in like fortitude or charity or temperance, you're like, these are things that I want to pray to expand my capacity for it, right? To expand my capacity for faith, things like that. So things like that have really been just different angles of entry into the spiritual life that have really been helpful to me. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Well, now I just want to like pivot the podcast and talk about spiritual formation, yeah. but we're actually doing that in a couple uh, episodes with um, Sharon Garlow Brown who's going to do that. But thank you for that beautiful piece. Um, but we do really want to lean in now to really is it's honestly, it sounds like fruit of that beautiful discipleship and ongoing journey is your contribution to the LGBT conversation. And um, we get a lot of questions here at HIMH, like both again, like I mentioned in the beginning, like these very practical, what do I do right now questions. And then what again can feel like very benign or, or small questions, but I want to start with some of those kind of smaller ones, um, mm-hmm. which are ones like, what does it mean to be like a gay Christian and what does gay mean and how can I use language that doesn't offend? But before we dive there, let's just clarify, <laughs> what does LGBTQ or LGBTQ plus or QIA, what does that mean and why doesn't the term like homosexuals fit that? Yeah, that's it. I mean, there are no, there are really no bad questions here. So, I mean, I, yeah. I think the reason why we don't talk about homosexual is that it's a, it's a word that for many people felt like pathologizing. So mm-hmm. in the mental health field, we used to talk about homosexuality as a diagnosable disorder. Mm-hmm. And so people aren't, you know, today comfortable thinking about themselves in language that has, begins in sort of that, that place. And of course, it doesn't even cover when you said like LGBTQIA or right. Q plus, like it doesn't even capture the uh, the sheer number of experiences there. So, you know, lesbian, right, gay, bisexual, transgender is a very different experience. So the first three have to do with sexual identity, like how the, the language I use to describe my sexual preferences to other people. So when someone says I'm gay, they're telling you something about the nature of their attractions or I'm bi, uh, they're telling you something about that. But once you move into T, transgender, you're talking more about your gender identity, which is your experience of yourself as a man or a woman or a different gender identity than that. Um, And then queer, it, it can mean, usually it means queer there. Sometimes people say questioning would be another one. Intersex might be the I there, A, asexual. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people will kind of put maybe more of a plus sign respectfully at the end of T or Q and just recognize that there are a lot of experiences of sexual and gender identity that you really can't do justice to. And I know sometimes in some Christian circles, people poke fun at that or, or can sometimes be antagonistic about that. I don't think that's a very helpful starting point for trying to be in dialogue with people who are navigating this space. Absolutely. And so important to mention. So another question that people will have is just that term gay. Um, What's it mean to be, and and you use in your book, the Understanding Sexual Identity book, you differentiate between essentially like a lowercase g gay and a capital G gay, uh, which whether or not you capitalize it, there is a difference in what you mean behind the differentiation between the lowercase and the uppercase. What is that difference and why does it matter? Well, the word gay is really interesting. There's a whole like history of its use that is beyond what I'm even going to say. But just think about like a generation or two ago to be gay, like to your parents' generation or their their you know your grandparents, like it would have meant much more promiscuous. Like it would have it would have had a certain cultural connotation. And so, um, 
you know, we also then would talk about like a gay lifestyle as a certain kind of a way of relating sexually with others and uh, promiscuity and things like that. So those are not phrases that I would use. I wouldn't use gay lifestyle because that's um, suggesting that everybody behaves a certain way. And that's like, there's not a straight lifestyle, right? And yet right. you know that there's promiscuity among straight people too, right? Absolutely. Um, so I think we have to be careful about that. But younger people today, when they talk about being gay, they aren't telling you anything about their sexual behavior at this point. Like what's what's gone out of the vernacular is the word homosexual or homosexual orientation. You're not going to meet a 14-year-old and you're not going to ask them, hey, what's your sexual orientation? They're not going to tell you I have a homosexual orientation. Like that's out, that's yeah. fallen out of the vernacular. What they'll tell you is I'm gay. And so gay means something different to a 14-year-old than it does to a 50 or 60 year old. So, um, so that's a really important starting point in these discussions mm -hmm. and crucial for churches because churches are one of the very few places where multiple generations coexist in the same space. Yep. And so here you are at 14 using one word that means something completely different to the grandparents in the same pew, just a few feet from you. Right. So right. that's a really important uh, distinction to make. Absolutely. So when that 14 year old says I'm gay, what do they mean? Well, they're typically going to be meaning this is my sexual orientation or this is the, the pattern of my attractions are mm -hmm. towards the same sex. Yeah. I wouldn't assume anything about sexual behavior or anything else. I, I would just take that at face value. And then if you had the opportunity to know them and kind of walk out, you know, do life with them, they, they could tell you more about what that means to them and what that, you know, just like, you know, most of us don't talk to people about um, the more intimate aspects of our lives, but we, we don't mind letting you know about the, the nature of our attractions. You know, right. that might be more on the table. So uh, that's, that's one thing. You also asked, you know, what about this lower and uppercase G? Let me be very clear. Outside of that book, nobody uses that distinction. So <laughs> it's just something that a good friend of mine shared with me because she's gay and she's also deaf. And in the deaf community, it's very, uh, it's a very well distinguished difference between people who talk about them be, themselves being deaf with a capital D versus a lowercase d. And so for the one group, it's like being deaf is a culture to be celebrated. And for the other group, it's more of a medical condition, more of a disability. And so, you know, there's a mutual understanding about that. But there's sometimes be some sharp disagreements about how people view hearing loss. And so all she was trying to tell me is, look, that happens in the gay community too. There are people for whom being gay, and that's the majority of people, for whom being gay is a point of celebration. Mm -hmm. But other people, being gay, now they wouldn't say probably disability or medical condition, that wouldn't be the right language, but they might say, it's kind of like the way Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. Like, it's more like that. So I'm not quite celebrating it in the way that the mainstream LGBTQ community is celebrating it. Right. But I will say that I'm gay because I'm being honest about the nature of my attractions, mm -hmm. the direction of my attractions. But the reality is, it's something I've asked God about. And I've said, Lord, you know, Lord, what would you have me do with this? Because this is a point of conflict for me. And it's as though God's saying, look, my grace is sufficient for you, much the way God responded to Paul. Absolutely. It's important to note, too, uh, that when a 14-year-old comes out, let's say they say, I am gay, they're not necessarily saying anything about their theology either. 
I think often there's parents or those in the older generations who assume, oh, that whole promiscuity piece. Oh, so you must be affirming. You must have changed your theology. And so you're going to act on this. But they could be say I'm gay and hold to a historical Christian view, as which is I don't believe this is God's best, which alludes to your whole thorn in the flesh analogy. Yeah, that's right. And so. I think one of the mistakes we make in ministry and sometimes in our families is we overreact to the language. And so one image that I use quite a bit in my workshops is I'll talk about an iceberg, right? So what's above the surface of an iceberg is like roughly 10% of an iceberg. I mean, here I am, some nautical expert, but anyway, it's like 90% is beneath the surface, right? And so what happens in ministries and what happens in families is we overreact to what's above the surface. And what's above the surface is usually like the sexual identity label, the word gay or lesbian or whatever. And so rather than minister to what's beneath the surface. And so one of the key things I think in parenting and one of the key things in ministry, youth ministry, is to really hone in on what's beneath the surface that I could minister to. What would God have me speak to that's beneath the surface and not overreact to what's above the surface? Absolutely. When I've seen the the same or a similar kind of mindset, especially when it comes to to transgender, because I, I very recently had a client that when they were introducing themselves, they, you know, their parents were in the room with them and they were like, okay, yeah, this is my kid. They're transgender. And the kid was very quick to say, no, I'm not transgender. I am gender nonconforming and I experienced dysphoria. Hmm. And I was, I was like astounded that a young ish kid was, was able to elaborate and, and, and actually correct their parent on the language use. But it's so often that we, we like to lump things into this big group and assume that we understand all the nuance when, when there's so much more that, that, that needs to be gotten to on, on a personal level and not just a, you know, and that's all that stuff that's underneath the surface that you're talking about. Yeah. Which is a helpful transition. Um, so we've been talking about gay, but what does transgender mean? So if someone is listening to this podcast, maybe they've been listening for a while, they hear all these different stories, but what's transgender mean um, and, and what's the, Matt, just through this gender nonconforming and uh, gender dysphoria, if you can give us like an <laughs> overview of those. I know you wrote a whole book about it, but the, the ABCs of it would be helpful. Quick rundown. So, yeah. you know, transgender is really an umbrella term for many ways that people experience or express or live out a gender identity that's different than the gender identity of people where their gender identity matches their biological sex. And so for the vast majority of people, right, they're born and, they're, and they're, their biological sex is male or female. In, and you usually think about that in ter- terms of chromosomes or uh, anatomy, you know, things of that nature. Um, and then for the majority of people, that corresponds with their gender identity, their sense of themselves as a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. But for some people, they don't experience it that way. And so it's an umbrella term when those things don't align in the way we uh, we often see. And so there's a lot of different experiences under the transgender umbrella. So if someone, I remember one person said to me, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. And so it's really probably pretty helpful if you have an ongoing relationship is to invite them to tell you more about what it means to them to be transgender, because you don't really know a lot about their experiences just because Mm -hmm. they use that word. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, when you talk about gender dysphoria, that's really more of a 
a mental health concern. So it's it's a diagnosis that's within the last revision of the diagnostic uh, manual that we use um, to diagnose any any other kind of mental health concern. So this would be when a person experiences distress when there's a lack of congruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. And so if you think of a positive emotional state is euphoria, right? Dysphoria is a negative emotional state that's connected to that lack of congruence. And that Mm. can be a really distressing experience, um, not having that kind of alignment. So that's not a sin. That's, That's not a sin. That's like a genuine painful thing. So if someone says, let's say they use the umbrella term, like I'm transgender and underneath that they mean like I experienced gender dysphoria for us to jump on the you need to confess your sin wouldn't be helpful but it no I mean that that's what this is what is the above the surface kind of thing like yeah. I think a lot of people treat gay and transgender as just willful disobedience and so if you if you have same-sex attractions if you experience this lack of congruence and you use the language of the common vernacular today to communicate that, that somehow you're being willfully disobedient. And I think what you can do right out of the gate in ministry to, to get off to the, on the right foot is to recognize that those things are not chosen experiences. Like people don't choose to experience gender dysphoria. They don't choose to experience same-sex attraction. They find themselves with these experiences much the way Uh, Straight people find themselves attracted to the opposite sex and people who are not transgender, uh, they experience this alignment. And that's, you know, again, the vast majority of people, that's true for them. So it's kind of a taken for granted reality. You didn't choose one day as a as a uh, biological female to identify as a girl. Right. It was just kind Mm -hmm. of a taken for granted experience of who you were. Well, that's that's what happens in the other direction sometimes, just very rarely. Mm. So helpful. So we're going to dive into three categories, like the title says of this episode, pastors or youth pastors and parents and therapists. And I'm just going to throw a few questions at you under each category so that pastors listening or parents or therapists listening can have uh, perhaps some, at least a few steps ahead in how they can really come alongside and walk alongside LGBT people, perhaps a little bit better. Um when you wrote your book, uh, specifically targeted at youth pastors, it was in 2013, and I know culture has changed so rapidly. Um, so either from that book that you can gather from or since writing it, what are one or two things that pastors and youth pastors can do to like set their, themselves up well to engage this conversation? Yeah. So one of the things that I think would be helpful is to is to use what I did in that book is I used a hiking metaphor. Yeah. And so I would do something like that. Like this is like with same sex sexuality, this is a developmental experience. So think like Eric Erickson from Psychology 101. Right. So this is like this is a time of identity exploration in adolescence anyway. And so during these years, adolescence into early adulthood, um, emerging adulthood, you have this time of exploration, who am I, right, is a normal developmental, like teenagers of all kinds, they, they are trying out different ways of kind of who they are at home and at youth group and at school. And over time, they sort of consolidate a sort of identity that's the same everywhere, right? But they're, they're trying to figure out kind of who they are. Well, extrapolate from that and, and, you, and, you, and you find yourself with same-sex attractions and you're trying to figure out your identity 
that's a developmental experience. And there's we talk about milestones that just different key things that happen in a person's life that that shape how they experience their same sex sexuality and whether they end up adopting gay as a as a kind of a capital G way of celebrating it or whether it's kind of a lowercase G or, you know, how they kind of think about themselves in light of that. And especially if they're Christians and how they think about their faith in light of their sexuality or vice versa. So think of them as hiking difficult terrain. That's kind of like Bear Grylls, right? He's out there hiking difficult terrain and he's got, um, you know, and so in ministry, you want to think of yourself more as a trail guide, somebody who's who's able to walk that trail with people. And you say, you know, a lot of times youth ministers will say, well, I, it's not my experience. So how can I be a trail guide? Well, you don't have to like be Bear Grylls. You just need to be familiar with the trail. You just have to have walked the trail with other people and to read up on it and know, you know, what to expect around this corner and sort of what what are some familiar things that people are going to be asking about, like disclosure, for example. You know, should I share with other people that this is part of my story? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's going to be a milestone event in people's lives. Like there's things like that. If you read up, you'll know these are going to be concerns for somebody who I have the honor of ministering to as we walk mm-hmm. on this on this challenging terrain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think it's even it's very helpful, even just that last thing that you said, that you have the honor of of walking them with them through that terrain. And, and so often it can be something where pastors or parents are going to be quick to kind of shove the kid off on someone else that they see as more expert. But, you know, if, if you're a pastor or a parent, you're going to be the, the one person or one of hopefully many people that that has the, the ability to journey long term with mm-hmm. with them. That's right. I think pastors themselves probably really set the tone um, for the church. So youth ministers are on the front lines for sure. And so that hiking that terrain is really an important metaphor. I think with pastors, what I would want them to understand is that most of the people that we see have heard very negative messages Mm -hmm. about the gay community and almost kind of a culture war way of framing the issues. When we interview people, they'll tell us that their church either was silent about this issue or they spoke in culture war terms about the issue. So, mm-hmm. and how, you know, how many of us know that silence still communicates something, right? It still, it still sends a message, but the culture war language might be something like, you know, gays are ruining this culture or gays are ruining marriage, right? When, when the Supreme Court was ruling on, on uh, the legality of, of, of gay marriage. And so I think sometimes it gets framed as an us versus them. And if you're 14 or 15, and this is your story, right? You've experienced same-sex attraction. You know, you quickly surmise that you must be a them Mm -hmm. by virtue of the way it's being talked about, right? Because you have, you know, and one one of the biggest gaps we've seen in milestones is first awareness of attractions at a young age, maybe around 12 or 13, and first disclosure on average with a Christian sample of, um, of gay people was closer to 17. Mm-hmm. And so that's not true for, you know, you may know people who've disclosed right at 13 or 14, but we just did a recent Christian college survey of gay uh, college students. And what we found was on average, there was a four-year gap between first awareness of attractions and first telling someone about it. Hmm. And you can imagine, you know, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I wonder if that's not because of the way that we either don't talk about it or we talk about it in derogatory terms that makes 
uh, a young person say, it's not safe to even tell people about this. I'm going to keep this under wraps. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a formula for shame, right? That's not a Absolutely. healthy way to go forward in your in your teen years. Absolutely. Which shame, again, as we know, is a feeling of I am worth less, which no one should feel that. No matter what we wrestle with, no one should ever feel that. So we're going to move into the category of parents because I know there's actually a lot of parents of LGBT kids who listen to this podcast um, and we have, and I'm sure you have this as well, Dr. Yarhouse, the parents coming to us almost daily with requests for help with their children who are coming out and identifying as gay or bi or pansexual or, um, honestly, it's been a lot more of, of kids coming out as a, identifying as a, a gender different from their birth sex. So what should parents first response be to their child when they come out and disclose perhaps this four years later uh, wrestling right. that they've been having, what should their first response be? Yeah, I think, I think what you want to communicate is um, that this is an, this, you know, thank you for telling me this. Thank you for sharing me. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for bringing me in. Um, you know, sometimes I have parents who will say, uh, you know, Mark, I, I, we don't even know our daughter anymore. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll and I'll I'll take a sheet of paper, a blank sheet of paper, and I'll draw a line down the middle, and I'll and I'll and I'll say, could you describe you know your daughter to me? Because I I've met with her and you've talked about her before, and they'll say things like, well, she's she's super, you know, she's really intelligent, she's she's sharp, she's got a great sense of humor, she's always loved Jesus, and you know she's um, loyal you know, to her friends. She has all these great qualities, right? So I'll put those all on one side of the line. And on the other side of the line, I'll write same-sex sexuality. Hmm. And so what I'll show them is the fact that your daughter has told you about her same-sex sexuality doesn't mean that the other things that you've described to me cease to exist, right? right. They're still there. In fact, mom, dad, you, we could make the argument that you have an opportunity to know your daughter better mm -hmm. than you did before because she brought – you know, she, she, she shared this with you and she was navigating this terrain without you before. And now she's inviting you in. Now, you know, we can talk about whether the invitation was, you know, more of an announcement. You know, sometimes, you know, people come home at Thanksgiving and they they plant a, a, a pride flag on top of the turkey right in the middle <laughs> of the uh, family dinner. And it's a you know, it's a different kind of a conversation. But but so we can talk about whether and how your loved one has shared this experience with you. And there, that, can, that can be, you know, create other layers of complexity. Mm -hmm. But the reality is they're telling you something you didn't know before, and it's an opportunity to know your loved one better than you did previously. Absolutely. A critical piece in this conversation is not just that first conversation, but it's the next one. It's the follow-up, which sometimes parents are just so shocked or, and they feel like ashamed or they're wrestling through their own reactions, either positive or negative. Um, yeah. But what should their follow-up be? Should they sign their kid up for therapy or check with pastors or pester their kids? Or like, what's what's a healthy follow-up? Well, I think the, the, the big message is I love you. You know, so thank you for sharing this with me. Thank you for trusting me with this. Thank you for bringing me in. I want you to know I love you, right? Yeah. You, so that's that's got to be right out of the gate, that ha those things would be uh, really valuable things. Because one of the greatest fears that a young person has is that this could mean um, 
that there's a chasm between us that can't be crossed. Yeah. Um, and, and that could have all kinds of implications, right? Um, and so there can be physical safety questions in their mind. There could be emotional safety, spiritual safety questions. Um, will it be spiritually safe to be in our house? Will, will I get messages that, that make it not very safe for me? Will it be emotionally an unsafe place? Will it be physically? Would I be welcomed here? So I think anything you can do to communicate, I love you. I will always love you. I'm all in with you. Those are the messages that I want to send. Now, the follow-up, you know, what you don't want to do is every conversation has to be about what they've just shared with you. Right. That's You don't want to do that, right? So my next conversation might be about their volleyball game. My, ne- my next conversation <laughs> might be about their math test. My, You know, I, I want them to know that I – you know, this is a part of their story and it's an important thing that they've shared with me. But I often, it's the next conversation will be about sort of normal stuff. And then the third conversation will be back to, hey, I wanted you to know that I've, you know, been thinking about what you share with me. And again, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you letting me know just really what was on your heart and on your mind. Like, Mm. so you kind of show this like balancing of, you know, where, you know, because what happens is parents often react, gosh, our son came out and now everything about him is gay, he's gay all the time. It's gay, this and gay, that, gay, you know, so this kind of thing. But you know, what we do as parents is we often react to our kids as though that's the only thing we can see now. Right. So we kind of collude with them on creating this kind of narrow, almost of caricature of who they are, this kind yeah. of truncated sense of self. So I like to thicken the plot and you thicken the plot by your familiarity with them and how much you know about them and the things that they're invested in, the relationships they have, the things that they're doing. Um, like, and I, and I think the other thing that happens in Christian homes is we think that because they've told you this, then their faith, they're jettisoned their faith, right? And yeah. so going back to the study we just did of Christian college students who are who are navigating same-sex sexuality, we were so impressed with the vibrancy of their faith. Mm-hmm. Like these were, these were college-age students who took their faith seriously and they took their sexuality seriously and they were trying to find a place to take both of these things seriously. Like this was really important to them at age 18, 19, 20. So that's something that I think may be helpful for parents to realize. Yes. Last parent question is I find, and you know, I'm not the first one to say this, but when the child comes out of the closet, the parent walks into one. Uh, and so what I mean by that is that they, the child, you know, has maybe been wrestling for four years with whatever sort of fear of disclosure. And then the parent is now doing their own version of wrestling for perhaps four years. But does it have to be this way where I kind of like the parent is on this solo agonizing journey because most of them have to do some sort of grief process. So how, like, is that okay for them to grieve? Like, what do they do with all of their inner turmoil? Yeah, yeah. So what we found is that um, there's two tracks that parents are figuring out uh, when they respond to their loved one coming out. One is um, they're seeking information. They're trying to cope with it. They're, you know, some of that is active coping. They're, they're, they're trying to take care of themselves, learn as much as they can. Um, and then they're also trying to keep as many points of contact with their loved one. And so those are the two kind of, they kind of coexist alongside the parent trying to figure out how to do both of those things at the same time. So those are important sort of, um, challenges that every parent faces. Um, and the one thing I would, caution parents around is sometimes they can become polarized with each other. Like if it's a two parent home and um, 
whenever we feel ambivalence, so that both uh, you know two different emotional states at the same time, usually a positive emotional state, like I love my loved one, and a negative emotional state, like this is really confusing, or I'm, you know, um, grieving and distressed about this. Sometimes the parents can become a caricature of one of those emotional states. And so mm-hmm. maybe the father becomes concerned because he's confused and it comes out as anger. And the mother, to sort of offset that, becomes a caricature of her emotional state, which is the love that she has for their loved one. But think about this as a family. Like they both love their loved one, but they don't have the ability to share the range of emotions that both of them feel. And so they can unfortunately become a caricature of one emotional state and polarize against the other one. And in a marriage, it can really drive couples apart. Hmm. So one thing I I really try to stress to parents is for both of them to be able to identify and process the full range of emotions, both the positive, the love that they have for their son or daughter, and the concerns and the confusion and the questions that they have. They need a space to do both. They don't want to have either one of them become a caricature of that space. It doesn't allow the other person to ask the questions and express the affection and things like that. Hmm. That's really helpful. Okay. And can I say something? Yeah, can I say something about transgender? Because this is a little bit, we're kind of talking here a little bit more about people coming out as gay. Please. When people, when a teenager comes out as trans, I would say, What's what we're seeing a lot of that's really challenging is um, and people are seeing this in specialty clinics all over the United States and in the UK and the Netherlands. But we're seeing a lot of um, what you would think of as kind of atypical cases. These are late onset cases where there really wasn't a lot of history of um, a child being different than other kids for gender related reasons. Right. So a, a boy who's different than other boys for gender related. He feels different than other boys. He's, 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 he's atypical in that way. His interests and things like that don't align with what maybe other boys are doing or a girl whose interests don't align with other girls are doing. And so um, there's not that history. And here comes a 15-year-old saying, you know, mom, I'm transgender and I'd really like you know, uh, chest reconstruction surgery or something like that, and you know, or cross-sex hormones or something like that, and the parents are just, you know, absolutely beside themselves. What do I, you know, understandably, what do what do I do with this? And mm. so, it can be a very, very alarming thing. That's probably one of the greatest uh, ministry and clinical challenges that we're facing right now in our culture and in our churches, and even in clinics. I mean, there, there's many clinics that are really struggling with what to do with these atypical cases because you know when someone was you know had gender atypicality as a child and you know for the last 15 years everybody knew there was something you know going on but they didn't have maybe a word for it we think of kind of an early onset gender dysphoria you know it's a different conversation when someone tells you about being transgender at 15 or 16 when you've had that long history of this kind of early onset Um, But it's very different when there's not that history and someone says, here's what's going on for me and here's what I need to take care of myself. Sometimes I use this image with with parents and and the teen is that to the teenager, it's like 
they're in a helicopter that wants to go straight up to reach altitude, altitude here being the intervention that they feel like they need right away. (sighs) And the parents are like in an airplane sitting on the tarmac, like trying to figure out a flight plan. Like they have no idea, you know, what are we even talking about right here? And so I just gently point out to the teenager, I don't know, you know, whether your parents will reach altitude, you know, where you are right now. But I just want you to understand where they are. Like they see you going straight up in this helicopter and they're on the tarmac trying to figure out a flight plan. And and we can work together to try to figure out the best way to go forward. But that's a pretty scary thing for a parent. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's scary for you to be up there by yourself like, hey, where is everybody? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how much you guys know about helicopter flying but and here I I would just add this with my nautical you know knowledge in my my helicopter but uh, actually helicopters don't go straight up they go out and then up into what's called a zone of safety and um, so sometimes I use that to talk to teenagers about what's that zone of safety right now as you've shared this about yourself and you're asking for these things and it's really difficult for your parents you know are there some things that you could do to kind of show them you know that, that you're 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 sort of willing to kind of take care of yourself here and kind of work with them and think through this together with me and with others, what's the best way to care for you moving forward? Hmm. Is there a best way in that scenario? Like, is it, like you mentioned, you know, there's one, meet one transgender person and you meet a transgender person, but is, is there a best way? Cause I don't, I hear you empathizing and I hear you trying to come to an agreement where at least emotionally and relationally the child and the parent can get to some sort of same page again. So it's not the parent's hair is on fire and the child is, you know, feeling alone and kind of freaking out feeling alone. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I hear you trying to to bring the common ground relationally and emotionally, but is there a right answer? Like, okay, this child should transition or does it help? Is it helpful enough to just bring them to that relational and emotional common ground? Well, I do think you have to you have to at least aim for that. That's the bare minimum because you, even if it's just mutual respect and and we see things differently, but we understand where we're coming from. So I I write a lot about um, you know we often see things through different lenses, and so one of the lenses is a lens of integrity, uh, and this has to do with that the integrity of male female differences, and that's really instructive for how a person should form their gender identity and, 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 and what that's going to look like for them. Another lens is one of disability that, you know, we live in a fallen world and these are, these are variations that occur in, in nature, but nature's fallen. So we have more empathy for the person. Mm. And a third lens is a lens of diversity where we say, well, these variations aren't, aren't because of moral concerns. They're not because of the fall. These are variations that we should be celebrating. And so I don't know that those three lenses exhaust what's out there, but there are at least three lenses that occur in our churches, um, in our neighborhoods, in our families. And I do a lot to help parents and teenagers and just understand the lens through which they've been seeing this experience, Mm. how that lens developed in them over time, how it became the sort of dominant way that they see things. So that can that can help with empathy and Mm -hmm perspective taking and things like that. So you say, well, is that is that your goal? Well, that's a starting point. I want to start there because if we can't do that, we're going to just be speaking past one another. It's it's kind of like if you speak English and you don't speak a foreign language and you're talking to someone who doesn't speak English and they're speaking a different language and, and you can't communicate. And so what do most people do? They, they start to speak in English louder. And so they start yeah. shouting in English louder and it absolutely 
communicates nothing other than they're angry, right? Yeah. And so I, I think a lot of that's what happens in these discussions is they're shouting, you know, integrity, 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 and their loved one is shouting, you know, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. And yeah. you know, it's like, we're not even, you know, on the same page as to how each of us began to see this this way and it became so salient to us. Uh, so I do a lot there, okay? Mm -hmm. But then you say, is there a right or wrong? I mean, I think there are, yeah, I mean, I think there are, there is right and wrong. Yes. I mean, I'm a Christian who believes that there is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we always know, you know, on a case by case basis, what's going to be the right answer for this situation. Yeah. That's where I would nuance this a little bit, mm -hmm. layer it a little bit more with some of the complexities. Right. Especially with this transgender conversation, because it, and even the same sex attraction conversation or the gay conversation isn't as black and white, but it seems to be more so like that's more of an issue of surrender, but with transgender and especially with gender dysphoria mixed in there, that's more like, okay, this is legitimate pain that people are walking through. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, I think where the gray can get extra gray. Well, it's really important to realize that these are not the same thing. So to, when someone says that they're gay, it's very different yes. experience than when someone says they're transgender. Absolutely. And so, the temptation is to think, well, they're the same in these ways, and so we treat them the exact same way. That's actually not a helpful starting point. You, you really have to understand what the different experiences are yep. to begin to lay out what's the terrain look like. So when we're hiking the terrain, we're hiking a different type of a path. And so, you know, when we talk about like as Christians, I do think there's greater clarity from Scripture around the sexual identity questions, or at least around behavior, right? But I, and I know that, you know, thoughtful people disagree about that, but I think scripture is clear, clear on that, on that piece. But I think when you get to gender identity, I think there's just fewer examples. There's just mm -hmm. less clarity. And there's a lot that we just don't understand, right, in, in this whole discussion, uh, even from science, let alone just the few places where things like that are even mentioned in scripture. So it's hard to kind of land with the same kind of confidence that right. here's what it would mean to shepherd somebody well. And I think that's all I'm saying is let's yep. let's walk with some humility here. Let's 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 be careful and on a case by case basis, let's walk with people with with greater pastoral sensitivity. Thank you for that clarity. I think that's gonna be helpful for people listening. We are going to finish up our conversation here talking about therapists. And I'm just going to throw uh, really just one question at you because you have been really practically helpful throughout this conversation for any therapists who are listening. I think just giving some tangible, practical ways to journey alongside people. Um, but there are many therapists that I know, at least Matt and I meet and talk to around the country and from people who come to us who change uh who, who offer advice or advise people, counsel them, um, kind of from a theology of God doesn't want you to be sad. And it's as if they change their theology because they see someone who's right in front of them and they're genuinely crying real tears. And perhaps the therapist hasn't done their, their homework theologically or they just don't know how to navigate it. And so they end up just following essentially the client's desires. So is that the only way, Mark, is that the only way to walk alongside someone is that you, you have to essentially change your theology? No, I don't think so. I, th I think we have to be careful um, when we talk about a person's happiness. So you you could sort of quickly become uh, therapists are really uh, pretty bad at this. Like we, 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 and I am one of them, we, we can, we can sort of focus almost in a, hedonic way on what brings you the most happiness, what brings you the most pleasure. 
and and how can we avoid pain? Mm. Um, I think it's better to help people understand if that's the way that they're approaching life. Are they aware of it? Mm. So it's you know it's one thing to say, look, I I get that that's the way you approach your life. I just want you to have greater insight that that when you make decisions, when you think about the costs and the benefits that you're sort of thinking in those terms and not other terms, right? So I don't have to be particularly critical of that, but I could at least help the person understand that that those are their points of reference. Like that, mm-hmm. that really matters. Like I, if I was seeing a therapist, I'd want them to help me gain insight into the way that I'm weighing things uh, rather than just take me at face value and say, well, because I think that this is pleasurable, you're going to sign off on that. And so the mental health community signs off on this because I find it pleasurable. And you talk about, you know, Christian concepts like joy. I mean, historically, joy is is not happiness, right? Joy, joy is the result of having weathered hardship. Right. And so um, happiness is too thin of a word for Christians. It's it's not quite right uh, for us to think in those categories. Now, it's perfectly fine for the mental health community, which is broadly secular, to think in those terms. Um, and, you know, we, we in our field, we talk about well-being and we talk about a lot of a lot of concepts that um, aren't always well defined. But they're not really Christian concepts. And so I think when you're a Christian in the mental health field, it doesn't mean that you drive all your clients towards, you know, your view of a good life. But I do think you honor God by helping your clients understand how they're directing their lives and toward what end. Mm. And so that they leave your time together with greater insight into, you know, how they order their lives and why they do it that way. Not Not in a way that's sort of, you know... Uh, manipulative and sort of getting them to realize that, you know, that's, that's empty and you got to really do it this way. It's not, it's not in any way to proselytize. It's just really to do them service, like to understand, you know, what, how they tick and what, what draws them. And I've had many clients say, you know, I appreciate the insights I've had into the decisions that I'm making because I'm weighing these decisions in this way and that's how I'm choosing to live. Now, those might not be the choices that I would make, and it might not be the choices I would want them to make for themselves. But I can tell you this, they leave therapy with greater insight into why they're choosing the things that they're choosing than they ever would have before. And that and that's, can be a good outcome. Yeah. All the control freaks listening are, are having a meltdown. But I hear that and I'm like, <laughs> yes, that's really good. Because really, Jesus, he gives us insight, but he lets us choose what we what we do, how we live our life, and we, and we can sometimes just see by the fruit that's produced, like, oh, this actually isn't producing joy. Maybe it's this hedonistic yeah. happiness, but I'm not satisfied. And maybe Mark said something that I actually hmm, need to think about. Well, I think, and I think that's you know, I think most people who who might be critical of what I'm part of what I'm saying is that they they do want me to counsel towards certain outcomes, right. and I. You know, when I'm I'm an elder in my church, and when I do shepherd people, I shepherd people differently than when I function as a public psychologist. You Mm -hmm. know, so when I'm licensed by, you know, a a board of psychology in the state where I reside, I have a different set of obligations to serve the public, and that's different than when someone sits under the spiritual guidance of the shepherds of of a local church and say, "We want to." to sit under that guidance and receive care in a certain direction, it's a different kind of a conversation. It's not any less gentle and any less, I think, wise, but it's you're, you position yourself a little bit 
a little bit differently alongside that person. Yeah. But I think in a, as a public counselor, a public therapist, a public psychologist, you enter into what's called a kind of fiduciary space of public trust, you know, where the, where the public has a right to expect certain things from a mental health professional. And I think when you can uh, when you can provide that to them, that can be a real benefit to them. And I think to your point, it's the way God treats me. God, mm-hmm. God treats me in a way that allows me to have real choices with real consequences. And, you know, when people come to see me, for example, for marriage counseling, you know, I don't counsel people only under the agreement that they stay married. Like I would <laughs> want that for them. But sometimes people choose Mm-hmm. not to stay married, right? And so they have that choice in front of them, even though, and those are some of the most tear-filled, anguishing sessions is when people all together have decided this isn't going to work moving mm-hmm. forward. And so we should grieve that, but it's a choice that they're making. It's not the choice that I would have made for them. And this mm-hmm. happens in any other counseling you do, whether it's around transgender concerns, sexual identity concerns, it's the same basic principle. And I think it's how God treats us. Mm. Well, yeah, I can't help but think of, you know, Romans 2, um, where it says, you know, the kindness, tolerance, and patience of God is what leads us to repentance. And and so often, like, you know, as a counselor myself, when I feel myself wanting to be like, no, you're not getting it, <laughs> which is what the, it being my view of what they should do. I need to remember that I am not the beginning and the end of of their journey, and my impatience doesn't dictate the the journey that that God has for them. And so I have to treat them with kindness and tolerance and respect, and and knowing that ultimately, if all that does is have them say, "Oh, there was a Christian person that didn't treat me terribly," and and God can use that, then hey, he can he can use that, and and just to almost take the responsibility for their salvation or their choices off of myself because Mm -hmm. you know at that point i'm I'm counseling for my own benefit not not for the client which is not actually counseling (laughs) right right well mark this has been so helpful and really practical and i i think i hope and pray that a lot of people will really benefit from again, the quote unquote small, even though it wasn't small questions to some of these deeper, heady theological ones, but we need it all. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate this, uh, this time together. It was really great. Yeah. So for all of you listeners, uh, we have a question of the week for next week and we're, we're kind of getting a little, little deeper, a little heartier, uh, but what actually helps your heart get aligned with the meaning of Christmas? So we talked about combating that commercialism. So what practices have you put in place to combat it? Do you do some sort of advent or, or what do you do? So we'll be talking about that next week. And as mentioned, how this podcast is brought to you by you. Uh, so you guys, we have some sweet Hole in My Heart podcast shirts that we want to give away and they're American apparel and they're really nice and soft and um, if you guys partner with us with any new gift of any amount just a monthly gift uh, we will send you this shirt just put inside the memo line either on your check or at himhministries.com slash partner when you do the PayPal sign up uh, just put your size preference between XS and XL um, and we'll send you that shirt or you can do a one time donation so if you give any amount of 50 or more just one time so if you're already a regular supporter but you want to just throw a little something extra so that this podcast and this ministry to help equip the church with a gospel-centered approach to sexuality we will send you that shirt as well just let us know in the memo line like i said with 
the word podcast and your size preference would be ideal. So thanks again to Mark Yarhouse for being on this podcast. And again, I will link you to all the beautiful Mark Yarhouse things that you can find online. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. Do you need to do levels? I've yeah, I've been kind of pretty much. Okay. levels. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Do you need me to turn up <laughs> your? <laughs> um, did you think he said nuggles? Yeah, is that a, a thing? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, like it could. That be... doesn't mean I didn't say it. it but... Right. I, I just thought it could be like a video that your ki- that your kids watch. Yeah. It just sounds like it oh is. the nuggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's where I got that word. Kazoops. That is actually a show. That is a show. I didn't know if it was more of your beard like wiggling stuff Be- beard this it's is the nuggler. this is the nuggler <laughs> the eraser uh, the, the this is the beard nuggler it's the eraser for the eraser whiteboard. eraser for the whiteboard yeah yeah so you can it literally looks like a it does gillette or like a disposable razor right right like a crappy one that it, would it, hurt I feel it, yeah yeah no like a travel razor absolutely that hurts you're not that i would know about razoring your face <laughs> razor face <laughs> Wait, taser face. Taser face. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now Guardians you guys are saying Guardians, of the, Guardians of the Galaxy oh. two. Yeah. You thought it was a good idea one day to wake up. You know what would be a great name that would strike fear into the hearts of men? <laughs> taser face. Who says it? Oh, the taser. Big, the, the raccoon, raccoon is oh, making yes. fun of the yes. the guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Luke just the other night. Luke quoted. Because we went to the movies and they have a poster up for the new Mary Poppins movie. Mm-hmm. And Luke's only context for Mary Poppins. Oh, Mary Poppins, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> you look movie? like Mary Poppins. He's like, is, is, that he, cool? is he cool? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Uh, Yondu. Yondu. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. What movie did you see? Creed 2. Mary Poppins, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Creed, two. Creed 2. I just want to see the new Harry Potter the the yes. new yeah Grindelwald right because yeah, Harry Potter is not don't in get it. out when was the last mo- time we saw a movie in a theater uh, was it the time that I was there by myself yeah probably oh, no, was, I wasn't was even just, there I don't see was, movies I don't know anything about anything what movie was that that was Solo no that was we saw Solo I in s- that was the last one I saw it was Solo this summer oh it was Jurassic World oh that's Fallen right. Kingdom that's right. Wow, yes. good memory. Well, there's only two movies I've seen this year, so <laughs> I've had, had to be one of the yeah. two.